I love uh, two lines in that song that we just sang. The first one is that God is faithful. Great is God's faithfulness. He's never failed us. Not one time. Not ever. Ever in our life. Not ever in the history of humanity. Has God ever failed to accomplish a promise? Or to accomplish His will, His purpose, His desire. And that same God will never, ever, ever fail you. That same God walks with you through your best times, through your worst times. That same God is with you all the time. That same God demonstrated His love for you on the cross by sending Jesus to die for you. That same God will never, ever, ever fail you. Not ever. He's with you today, He was with you yesterday, and He'll be with you tomorrow. He will bring into fruition every single thing that He promised to do in your life. Great is His faithfulness. He's never failed us. Not one time. Now I'm going to preach a sermon this morning that I preached about four years ago as a part of a lesson I did in the book of Acts. And as I was preparing this message in Acts, uh, Acts chapter 5, I've noticed how so much has changed since the last time I preached this. We're talking about how God grows His church, and, and this is the last uh, segment in the sermon series on, on byproduct, how God grows His church. And tonight, today we're talking about God grows the church through obedience, and uh, more specifically, obedience to preach the gospel amidst opposition. Now, four years ago, when I preached this message, um, all of my examples uh, were about opposition that Christians face overseas, right? I talked about, you know, the church in Iran. I talked about uh, churches in, in countries where Jesus' name is not mentioned very often, and oftentimes people die for proclaiming the gospel. And now I look at this same message as I prepared it for today, and I thought about how things have changed in America, how we now face opposition here in the United States in a way that no one ever thought was possible. We have brothers and sisters in other states in America who are unable to meet and worship God. Do you know that? We have uh, brothers and sisters who have been arrested, who have been ticketed, who have been brought into the courts because they want to gather and worship Jesus and proclaim the gospel. We have brothers and sisters who were brought up in front of people and shamed for wanting to gather and worship the Lord in cities where they have casinos open and restaurants open and grocery stores open, where they have abortion clinics open. In those same cities, it's illegal for them to gather and worship God. So what I'm about to preach to you is not something that happens in a distant land. It's something that's happening in our land. And so church, we need to prepare ourselves to stand for Jesus because it's coming. It may not come today. It may not come, up, come tomorrow. It, it may not come next year. But it is coming because Jesus said that it was going to come. And this message today, four years ago, was something that we concluded with a prayer for our brothers and sisters in other countries who couldn't openly worship God, who couldn't stand on a corner and proclaim the gospel. And, and we're going to continue to pray for them, but now it's brought closer to home. Now today, church, we're commanded, compelled by the Lord and by this message to decide in our heart if we will take a stand for Jesus. 
When the fight comes to Fifth Street Baptist Church, will we be ready to stand and fight for the gospel and proclaim it among a lost and dying world? That's what we're compelled to answer today. I want you to take out your Bibles and open it to Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. The first part of this message teaches us something important, that the safest and most dangerous place to be is in God's service. The safest and most dangerous place to be is in God's service. Look at verse 17. It says, Then the high priest rose up, he and all who were with him, who belonged to the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. So they arrested the apostles and put them in public jail. So what's happened so far is Jesus has come. He died on the cross. He rose again on the third day, uh, spent time with his disciples in his risen body, and then 40 days later left and ascended to be at the right hand of God. After he ascended, then the Holy Spirit came and empowered and uh, equipped the disciples to go out into Jerusalem first to share the gospel. And so Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost and he shares the gospel. Thousands are saved. After that, the church is unified. They're proclaiming the gospel. More and more people are being saved. More and more people are seeing the miraculous works, the signs and wonders, leading people to faith in Jesus. After that, Peter and John are in the temple. Uh, They heal a man who's unable to walk, and that gets them an appointment with the religious leaders who are unhappy with this message that they're preaching about Jesus. So they give them a stern warning and release them. Shortly after that, they're back in the temple proclaiming the gospel, and thousands more are saved. The church is growing exponentially at this point. Now, the religious leaders don't like what's happening. At the same time, they're afraid of the people because the people know instinctively that this is, in fact, a movement of God. And so the religious leaders see what's happening, but they need to put an end to it. So we catch up with that here in verse 17. The high priest rises up calls the Sadducees together, and they arrest the apostles. So instead of just arresting Peter and John, now they arrest the 12 apostles, and they put them in the public jail. Now the Sadducees, if you've never seen that word before, are a group of religious leaders, a party party in Judaism, who at this point have control over the religious system in Jerusalem. Now, they elect regularly a high priest, and that high priest sort of runs their meetings. He also makes sure that the sacrifice, uh, sacrifice and the worship taking place in the temple is done appropriately and according to the Word of God. They're also politically connected with the Romans. So at this time in Jerusalem, Rome has full authority over the Israelites. They, they, the Romans have conquered Israel. They, they own that land. And the people of Israel are really under their authority. But the, the Roman authorities give the, the Jews a small amount of religious freedom to practice their faith. Now the Sadducees are, are very integrally, uh, integrally connected with Roman authority. So Essentially, they have power given to them by Rome, and they don't want to rock the boat because they don't want to lose that power. They don't want to be stripped of their opportunity to worship in the temple. They do not want to be uh, beaten, enslaved, killed, and so forth by the Roman authorities. So they don't want anything really to happen. They want to kind of keep things on the down low. And, and this big movement, uh, this Jesus movement that's erupted in Jerusalem, has caused them some concern. 
Aside from that, the sudden numerical growth among these Christians, these followers of Jesus, has caused them to be jealous because the crowds are going after them. The crowds are gathering around them and, and they're, they're starting to have some, some sort of spiritual authority over the people through the name of this man, Jesus, who was crucified and buried. They didn't want to lose their power, so they arrest them and they put them in the public jail. Now, this arrest was very public and it was intended to make uh, make them an example so that the rest of the Jews would see these uh, preachers put in the public jail and see, now if you want to be a part of this, this is also going to happen to you. Some of that's happening in America today. Now, these guys are in jail for preaching the Word. And we continue in verse 19. It says, But an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail during the night, brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and tell the people all about this life. Hearing this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. First, something that is miraculous and easy for us to sort of read over is God sent an angel to this public jail and he opened the locked doors and let the apostles out. Now, God could have just opened the doors if he wanted to, right? He has the power, right? But he chose to send an angel, and he does that three times in the book of Acts, by the way. We don't have the name of this particular angel, but he goes in, he opens the doors, and he gives them a message from God. Go back to the temple and preach. Now, that was was something of of a test of faith for the apostles, I'm sure. What got them in the jail? They were in the temple and they were preaching. So the angel comes and locks the doors by night. Tells him, go back to the temple and preach again. And he says, preach about this life there in verse 20. And that particular specifically means preach the gospel to the people. This life is the eternal life offered to all who repent and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. So go and testify about this man Jesus, the risen Lord, the Messiah. Tell the people about who he is and what he's done and what he desires to do in their lives. This command from God is in direct violation of the religious authorities' previous command in chapter 4 for them not to preach the gospel. So what did the disciples do? What did the apostles do? Verse 21, hearing this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. So in Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, the the temple is situated there. And at daybreak, the people would come into the temple and they would offer the morning sacrifice. So as soon as those temple doors are open, then the apostles enter with everybody else. They take up their place. Generally, they were in Solomon's portico. That's where they liked to do their preaching uh, because it could gather large crowds. So they're in the temple, standing at daybreak, preaching the gospel, doing exactly what God called them to do. Meanwhile, day has dawned. Verse 21 continues. It says, When the high priest and those who were with him arrived, they convened the Sanhedrin, the full council of the Israelites, and sent orders to the jail to have them brought. And when the servants got there, they did not find them in the jail, so they returned and reported, We found the jail securely locked and the guards standing in front of the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. As the captain of the temple police and the chief priests heard these things, they were baffled about them, wondering what would come of this. 
So they called together this group called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was 70 of the most powerful, influential, religious teachers in Judaism. And so they would come together like a council, and they would put people on trial. They did the same thing to Jesus before they put him to death. They would, uh, they would arbitrate uh, things between people and groups of people of Jews. It was kind of like their official uh, legal system. So the Sanhedrin is called together, and they're going to bring these apostles in, and they're going to sort out what's going on uh, in this movement in Jerusalem. So they order the jail guards to go to the public jail and to bring them back. What I find sort of interesting, if you look back at that text, the jailer goes back to get him out. The guards are standing in front of the doors, right? So they go in, they open the doors which were locked. So the angel opened the doors the night before, let the apostles out, closed the doors and locked them. I just, isn't that funny? Closed and locked the doors. So everything was kind of undisturbed. And they go in and they're not in there. They're gone. Notice um, that the angel broke them out right under the nose of the guards. Right? So what happened to those guards? Were they sleeping? Were, were the apostles just invisible as they walked by? I don't know. It doesn't say. Whatever happened was miraculous. But I wonder if any of those guards were brought to faith in Jesus by that miraculous work. Right? Okay, picture this. I don't want us to miss this. You're a guard, standing guard over a jail. You're the one appointed to stand in front of the door so no one gets out of the jail. You're there all night staying in front of the door. You don't fall asleep because it's a severe penalty for falling asleep on duty. You're standing there, right? So then they call to you in the morning. All right, bring the, bring the prisoners out. You turn, you unlock the doors, and they're gone. There's only one way out of that jail. Through that door that you were standing in front of all night. And here they are. They're gone. I wonder if any of those jailers, you know, just followed Jesus just because of that. That's pretty amazing. Everything that God does here is intended to draw people to faith in Jesus. Verse 25 continues. So, all of the Sanhedrin are gathered in the temple, the same temple where the, where the apostles are preaching, and they get all the big muckety-mucks together, right? And they're going to have this, this council. They said, bring them, bring them in. The guy comes back. They're not in there. They're like, uh, that's never really happened before. So then the answer is found in verse 25. Someone came and reported to them, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the commander went to the servants uh, with the servants and brought them in without force because they were afraid that people might stone them. So somebody witnesses the apostles had been broken out of jail and they're in the middle of the temple preaching. Most people probably would have broken out of the jail and then run, right? Run to high heaven, right? You're running, right? In every Western show I ever saw where they bust somebody out of jail, what do they do? Man, they're on their horses, they're riding out of town, they're never going to come back, right? They're gone. What do these guys do? They bust out of jail, walk like whatever, a half mile, back right into the temple and preach the word one more time. We're going to do this. Let's do this thing. These guys were not afraid of anybody. They were not afraid because they were ready to stand for Jesus. So they're there in the crowd, in front of the crowds, preaching the gospel again, doing exactly what God called them to do. The, the uh, commander who's mentioned there, the commander, he's going to be the lead, um, the, the lead guard of, the, of the, essentially the Jewish, the, 
the, the Jewish police, right? So he's kind of the, the captain of all the, the police. So he's kind of in charge of these prisoners. So he knows they're back there preaching. He knows, man, I better get these guys in front of the Sanhedrin because I'm going to be in some serious trouble if we lose these guys. So they go back. Now, generally what he is equipped and um, what he uh, is perfectly able to do and given authority to do would be to walk into that crowd of people uh, to nail these guys on their knees and to drag them back into the Sanhedrin if he wants to. He could give them a beating if he wanted to because they weren't in jail where they belong. Instead, it says that he goes and he asks them to go with him to the Sanhedrin. Why? Because he's terrified at this movement of God. He's terrified of this crowd. Something so magnificent has happened here that even this man with all this authority doesn't raise his hand against these apostles. He's afraid. Now, that brings us to a statement that I had said earlier. The safest and most dangerous place to be is in the service of God. Now, it's the safest place to be because God's uh, sovereign, God's omnipotent, He's all-powerful, God's omniscient, He knows everything. God, as that song says, God's faithful and God will fulfill. Everything He designed to happen is going to happen. So if God called these men to preach the gospel in the temple on that day, it, it doesn't matter if they were on the other side of the world. They would be in the temple on that day preaching the gospel, right? That's why it's the safest place to be. If God's called you to do something, God is going to give you the power and the authority to see through it, to do it. He will give you everything you need, the resources, the ability. You will fulfill God's calling upon your life when he's placed that calling in your heart, right? That's why it's the safest place. It's also the most dangerous place to be. Because when we stand for Jesus, when we follow the will of God, we will engage in opposition. We are engaged in a spiritual battle that we cannot see, one that we must walk according to our faith. We're on the end, the tip of the spear, engaging the enemy Satan, his demons, and this culture, this world. We're engaging all of those things when we stand for Jesus and follow God's will. But remember this, that the war was already won by Jesus on the cross. So we have a choice to make. Just like those disciples when the angel opened the door of that jail and said, now go back into the temple and preach the gospel. We have a choice to make, church. Will I put on the armor of God and get into the battle? Will I trust in the Lord's protection and His provision? Will I obey His commands and His calling upon my life and be a light in this world to do good deeds in the name of Jesus and to tell people about Him and how He radically changed my life? Will I do it now? Will I do it today? Will I do it every moment after this one? Next we see the disciples in front of the Sanhedrin. And what we're going to learn about is that everyone can be of service to God, even his enemies. Look back in the text with me at verse 27. After they brought them in, they had them stand before the Sanhedrin and the high priest asked, didn't we strictly order you not to teach in this name? Look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. 
So picture the apostles, really uneducated in the eyes of, of other people, unimportant men who followed this man, Jesus, who was crucified and died a criminal's death. They're, they're not impressive men. Brought before this impressive council who all would have been seated in front of them while they stood to face this trial. The high priest delivers two charges against them. One, they continue to preach the gospel about Jesus. This is something they told them previously that they were not allowed to do. Two, they are preaching about Jesus. Their preaching about Jesus includes an accusation that the religious leaders are guilty of condemning an innocent man, Jesus, to death. So when did this happen? Well, if you look back at Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 3, in verses 13 through 18, this is right after Peter healed the man in the name of Jesus who couldn't walk. This is Peter's sermon. Let me read it to you. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our ancestors, was glorif has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you hand handed over and denied before Pilate, though he had decided to release him. You denied the holy and righteous one and asked to have a murderer released to you. You killed the source of life whom God raised from the dead, and we are witnesses of this. By faith in his name, his name has made this man strong. That's the guy that was healed who couldn't walk. Whom you see and know. So the faith that comes through Jesus has given him this perfect health in front of all of you. And now, brothers and sisters, know that you acted in ignorance just as your leaders also did. That's the Sanhedrin that he's talking about there. In this way, God fulfilled what he had predicted through all the prophets that his Messiah would suffer. So this is Peter's sermon that he said in the temple in front of everybody earlier. Now, according to Old Testament law, if the high priest and his religious rulers were guilty of murdering Jesus, then they should be put to death. So Peter's response to these charges is clear and concise. So they bring up to Peter, <clears throat> we told you not to talk about Jesus and stop blaming us for his death. Peter's answer in 29, verse 29 is pretty amazing. Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than people. Just short and sweet. It's not a long convoluted speech about why they're doing what they're doing. He's just telling them the way it is. God told us to preach this gospel and that's what we're going to do. We're not going to obey you. We're going to obey God. This is the second time Peter said this to the council. The religious leaders have also misunderstood Peter's intention, which is common today. When Peter said in, in his sermon, two of his sermons, that, that the religious leaders and the people that were gathered in those crowds on the day when Jesus was crucified were guilty of Jesus' blood. That was true, but he didn't say that to condemn them. He said that to tell them, like, you did this, and that was a sin. But listen, God's plan was for him to die, and now you can be forgiven of that sin. You can receive Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. He doesn't want the religious leaders to be punished and executed for their part in Jesus' crucifixion. Instead, he wants to bring them to repentance and trust and faith in Jesus as Lord. And, and if you regularly share the gospel, you probably run into this as well. When you tell people about Jesus, we get to the point where we have to tell them, listen, you're a sinner. You make mistakes. You're condemned for those mistakes. The wrath of God 
lies on you right now so that if you were to die today, you would go to hell. That is a stumbling block for many. But for those that see the truth, for those that receive faith from the ministry of the Holy Spirit, hear the next part, right? The next part, but Jesus died for you and you can turn from your sin and trust in Him. You can be forgiven of those sins. You can go to heaven and be with Jesus when you die. By the grace of God, you can be saved from your sin. Well, Peter's going to try one more time. And probably one of the most concise, articulate sermons in the Bible. It's three verses long. Ready? Verse 30. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging him on a tree. That's a good way to start a sermon, right? God exalted this man to his right hand as ruler and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So Peter delivers a three-sentence mini-sermon. He's unafraid. He's bold. He's going to do exactly what God called him to do. Telling the religious leaders what they did to Jesus, but also telling them that they can be forgiven and receive Jesus as their Messiah. This is a hard message for them. How will they respond? Well, they give an answer in verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was respected by all people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered the men to be taken outside for a little while. So the, the religious leaders get so angry, they're so worked up by Peter's words that they want to kill him. I mean, they're ready to take him out and stone him. God intervenes in the heart of a leader named Gamaliel, who ultimately was the, the teacher of Paul before he was saved. This is Paul's teacher. Very well-respected man. Utters God's will in this moment. So you can see here that God uses him, even though he's probably not a believer at this time. And Gamaliel has something to say about this in verse 35. He said to them, Men of Israel... Be careful about what you're about to do to these men. Some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all his followers were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and attracted a following. He also perished, and all his followers were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, stay away from these men and leave them alone, for if this plan or this work is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may be even, even be found fighting against God. They were persuaded by him. So what Gamaliel points out is two other messianic movements had already taken place. These are two men that rose up at different times and claimed to be Messiah. They were a false Messiah, and they raised up these little followings, one 400, and those were stamped out by the Roman authorities, and it came to nothing. So what Gamaliel says is he says, listen, if this is one of those movements, it's just going to die out by itself. But if God's behind it, if, if it's a true movement of God, 
then it's going to continue and grow and you're really not going to be able to do anything about it. In fact, if you try to stop it, you're actually going to find yourself standing against God, the God that they claim to love. Now, this is pretty amazing, right? This guy stands and really just declares God's truth to these religious leaders. And they're sort of won over. They agree, okay, so we need to cool off a little bit. And, and Gamaliel sort of stymies their rage for a moment. Now, ultimately, that would be unleashed in full force against a man named Stephen that we'll go over in a, in a few weeks when he's stoned to death. But they do stop. They do take a breath and recognize the wisdom of Gamaliel's words. Now, they continue in verse 40. After they called in the apostles and had them flogged, they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and release them. Now, we read one verse right there, and it, it is fairly easy to leave what they did to these apostles unrecognized, okay? So I want to stop, and I want to tell you what they did to them. When it says in that, in that text that they had them flogged, that means that they were hit, they were lashed 39 times. It was an exceptionally cruel punishment. They were bare-chested and in a kneeling position, and they would be hit twice across the back and once across the chest 39 times. People were known to have died during a flogging. So all 12 of these men were brought to their knees and flogged for preaching the gospel. When I read that text in verse 40, it reminds me of a study that we did a few months ago called The Insanity of God on um, Sunday nights. If you're able to be here for that, it's the study of the persecuted church around the world. Um, people today are still flogged. Uh, Christians today are flogged for preaching the gospel, for going to church, just for being Christians. They're martyred. They're, uh, they're stripped of their family, their homes, everything. Right now, in this moment, uh, there are believers around the world who are sacrificing their bodies. They're sacrificing their well-being. They're even giving their lives for the gospel right now. Why? Why would a Christian give their life, their well-being, their family, why would they give that up for the gospel? Because they believe the gospel. Because they believe that God's plan will come to fruition. Every part of it, every time, in His time. Peter declared something during this interrogation in verse 29 that I want you to think about. He said, we must obey God rather than people. When the Word of God makes His will clear to you, you must obey it. Why? Because God's will cannot be thwarted. Even God's enemies, think back in the Old Testament, Pharaoh, Herod, religious leaders, even Gamaliel here, are used by God to execute His plan. No one, no thing will ever stand in the way or prevent God's plan from coming to fruition. Are you ready to stand like Peter? Are you ready to stand in front of authorities and say, I'm going to do what God's called me to do, not what you've commanded me to do? 
We must obey God rather than people. We must obey God rather than people. Will we do that? That's a question that everyone must answer in our hearts. Will we do that even when it's unpopular? Even when it's unwanted? Even when it will get us fired from our jobs, fined, arrested, or beaten? What if we'll lose money? What if we will lose our homes? What if we will lose our families? Will you stand? Will you stand? Or will we fold like a cheap suit? The thing is, if inside of your heart right now, as I say that, will you stand? Will you stand? Maybe right now your heart is saying, yes, yes, I will stand. I will stand for Jesus. The thing is, if, if we plan to stand for the Gospel, we've got to be ready to stand for the Gospel right now. If you wait until the heat is turned up, until after the persecution begins, you might not be ready to stand for Jesus. You might not be ready for the arrest or the fine or the fire or whatever. We must count the costs now and be ready to stand for Him. Because we know that it's coming. It's already here. It's coming. One final question, our last two verses. Are you ready to suffer shame for His name? Are you ready to suffer shame for the name of Jesus? Look at verse 41. Then they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin, so they'd just been flogged. 39 lashes on their back and on their chest. They were no doubt bleeding, broken, Picture these 12 men helping each other out of the temple. They went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin, listen, rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. The name of Jesus. Every day in the temple and in various homes, they continue to teach and preach, proclaim the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. How would they respond? That's the question, right? How would they respond after being warned and then finally arrested and then flogged, lashed 39 times? How would these men respond? They walked out of that place celebrating that Jesus found them worthy to suffer shame for His name. Celebrating. And then, of course, they ran and hid in their homes, right? No, that's not what they did. What did they do? They went right back to the temple. They kept preaching the gospel. They were going to homes, telling people about Jesus. Why would they celebrate their persecution? Why are they counting this as a blessing? It, 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 it's totally contrary to our American way of life, right? Why? Because Jesus told them that it was going to happen, and then he told them what they would receive from him. So, in Luke 6, 22 and 23, Jesus said, Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, insult you, and slander your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Take note, your reward 
is great in heaven. For this is the way their ancestors used to treat the prophets. So why did they celebrate? Because every lash that dug into their back credited to them a reward in heaven and the pleasure of our Lord and Savior Jesus because what they were doing was suffering for the name of the Lord. They were suffering shame for Jesus. They continued to follow God's command. When I read that, that they left that place and then kept preaching the gospel in the temple and kept going into homes and telling people about Jesus. When I, when I read that, I just think they, they just had so such a, a laser focus on the gospel that they didn't even regard those threats, right? Like their pain was real for sure. But they had no regard for their threats because the reward of heaven and the pleasure of the Lord Jesus overwhelmed anything anyone could ever do to them. They were focused on eternity. Focused on the gospel. I remember about three weeks ago, I watched a news story about a man who came down from the north with his family and friends and they came to the beach and uh, the kids, you know, as kids do when you get to the beach, how they just like get out of the car and just run, right? Well, that had happened. And there was a bad riptide that day. And one of the kids got, got out before they could get to him. And he was out and kind of, you know, fl- floundering right there. And so the dad doing, you know, what any good dad would do, he runs out, right? He gets in the water. He swims after this kid. Um, what was interesting about the, and sad about the story is, you know, he had exerted himself so much. He saved the life of the boy. And then he died right there on that beach. And I remember reading it. And I asked Arlene to read it. I'm like, this doesn't make sense. How, how could the man die on the beach? Like, he didn't drown. You know, he saved the kid. And then he died. And she said, well, she was a lifeguard. Sometimes, you know, he could have aspirated water. and all, A bunch of stuff could have happened. But what this man decided was I'm going to put aside everything that's telling me to stop right now, and I'm going to save this boy. So his body's telling him to stop. His body's telling him it needs more air. His heart may be telling him to slow down. But he disregarded all of that to save the life of this boy whom he drags on this beach, and now that man passed away and that boy lived. What we're called to do by the Lord Jesus is to stand for the gospel, to stand for him, to completely disregard our own well-being for the glory of God. Now I get it. I get it. That's not an easy message. But that's the commitment that God calls us to make. Am I ready to suffer shame for the name of Jesus? Am I ready to stand and proclaim the gospel When the fight comes to 5th Street and the authorities tell us we're no longer able to meet, we're no longer able to proclaim the gospel, we're no longer able to tell people about God's wrath and about their need to be saved, when when that comes, which it will, will we be ready to stand? If we're going to be ready to stand, we've got to make that decision today. What about you? Are you ready 
to stand for Jesus? Are you ready to get into the spiritual battle? I want to invite our team to come up for our time of invitation. Today's invitation um, leads us to a, a moment of decision. As believers, are we ready today to declare that I'm going to stand for Jesus? I will stand and declare the gospel. I will stand and be a part of this church. I'm ready to suffer shame for his name. I'm ready to do whatever it takes with total disregard for myself. So everyone, please stand with me now, if you would. We're going to have a time of invitation. We're going to sing a song together. If you have a decision to make, I want to invite you to come forward. If you just want to come and pray, the altar's open. If you need to make that decision and declare it from your seat, that's fine too. Whatever it is, don't let this moment pass. Will we, like the disciples, stand for the Lord Jesus? Heavenly Father, I pray over this congregation, including myself, that you would give us the strength to stand. That you would give us the strength to proclaim the gospel even in a culture that despises you, that, that doesn't necessarily want to hear what we have to say. But that you would firmly place inside of our hearts that we will do what God says and not what man says. We will follow your word. We will obey your will. We will proclaim the name of Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray.